Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the podcast, I've got the great pleasure of welcoming Tito Nazar, founder of Gravel Del Fuego out of Chile, to discuss the event, the growth of gravel in Chile and Patagonia, and the beauty of the region of Patagonia. He's going to share his personal journey from mountaineering to ultra running to gravel cycling and how he was inspired to create Gravel Del Fuego as an homage to his home region of Patagonia. As someone who's had the great pleasure of visiting Patagonia on a hiking trip previously, I would double click on that and encourage you to run over to Instagram and follow the Gravel Del Fuego site to see just what we're talking about as we have this conversation. Before we jump into this conversation, I need to thank this week's sponsor, Dynamic Cyclist. If you're not familiar with Dynamic Cyclist, it's a video-based stretching and strength program focused on cyclists. The team over there has created a vast library of stretching and strengthening routines focused specifically on those problem areas that us as cyclists constantly endure. As someone who's always struggled with mobility and flexibility, I've really welcomed these training sessions because they're only 15 minutes long, which means you can fit them into almost any day of the week. They focus on the various body parts that we overuse as cyclists and even have specific stretching programs for those problem areas. For me, it's the low back. So each winter, I follow their six-week low back training program in addition to the general stretching and strengthening training advice they provide. Go on over to Dynamic Cyclist and check it out. You can use the coupon code THEGRAVELRIDE to get 15% off any of their plans. They do have a free trial, so there's no reason not to head on over to dynamiccyclist.com and give it a try. With that business behind us, let's jump right into my conversation with Tito. Tito, welcome to the show. Hello. I'm super excited to have this conversation. It's been a while in the making. Thank you so much for your patience. Um, it required a lot of work on my side, but you've been very kind to me. So thank you for having me. You had me at Patagonia. The moment you said that in your first email, I was like, I need to find out what Tito is all about. <laughs> and the more I've learned over the years have left, left even more excited to have this conversation today. Yeah, Patagonia. Well, it's such a powerful word. Uh, probably you agree with this. Um, yeah, Patagonia is very far south, don't you think? Close to Antarctica, it, maybe? <laughs> indeed. I think it's the farthest south I've ever been. And just putting it out there to those listening, I've been on a trekking trip in Patagonia, which covers the, and jump in, correct me if I'm wrong, but the sort of southern area of yeah. Argentina and Chile is kind of the Patagonia region. And I had the pleasure of seeing some of the most beautiful mountains in the world on this trek. And also some of the longest bus rides I feel like I've ever taken across the region to get from <laughs> one point to another. And windy maybe, no? A hundred percent. I think the first yeah. day, the sort of the female guide, she was wearing a ski hat and it was, it was not a cold time of year. 
And she was just basically like, hey, if you're going to be out in this ripping wind all day, it's just nice to have something covering your ears. Yeah, yeah. Patagonia, it's crazy. Um, I'm a very, um, I want to believe I'm a big fan of history, but also, yeah, I have a deep connection with the past. And I think Patagonia is powerful because of, her, of the aesthetics, the mountains, of course. But the history that surrounds uh, the mountains is something that is hard to grasp and maybe to find. Uh, but of course, I was born and raised there. So I want to believe that I have a deep connection with my land. Uh, and that's why I'm very excited about this event. Because, um, of course, um, I want to show the world a different perspective. Even, even to myself, like I know my region climbing, ice skating, uh, skiing. But uh, but graveling or graveling is a new thing in Chile and even more in Patagonia. Yeah, we'll get into it in a minute because I know you described the sprint loop as being one of the most spectacular rides you've ever done. But before we get into the event itself, mm -hmm. let's just talk a little bit about you and your background and how you came to the sport of gravel cycling. Mm. Okay. Mm. Okay. I began doing mountaineering. Uh, there is this guy, Uli Steck. Have you heard of him? Uh, may yeah. he rest in peace. Ah, okay. You know, the Banff uh, Festival was in, it was it still taking, it takes place in Chile. So, of course, if you were a rock climber following Chris Charma, you know, Adam Ondra now these days. Uh, and eventually, Uli Steck showed up in one of those videos climbing the north face of the Eiger. So, I was one of those fans. And I've been... I was talking this with my girlfriend. I, I, I think I am very obsessed with going fast and light. I never liked trekking really, which I've been a trekking guide, but it was not my thing. I was always cutting grams and stuff, ounces, you would say. But what I'm trying to say is that uh, I got into mountaineering. Then I understood there was something called trail running. And I became an ultra runner, I guess, around Leadville 100. I did it. I got the big, bup, big buckle. I don't know how many hours you Amazing. have to do it. I don't remember the hours. Um, it was the only time I trained in my life. And oh, it was ultra. Then I knew it took me too many years. I had like a very conventional education, private schools and Catholicism. And I had to become an engineer. Nothing of that worked. And it took me many years to understand that I have like a deep passion for ultra stuff, ultra whatever. So one person told me that if you had a bicycle, I could go super far over 200 Ks. That might be 160 miles. So maybe two months after I bought my first road bike, I hated it, but I just used it. And have you heard of this uh, concept, Craig, called Brevet? Brevet? This yes. Paris Brevet? Yeah. In fact, oh. we just, I just had a friend on talking about Perry Russ Paris and explaining the Brevets and, and that whole culture. You see? Okay. So I did the 200, the 300, the 400, the 600 case, and I, I ended up not liking it. It was too easy because it's just road bikes. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm. it was lacking to me of a real adventure because, you know, it's everything too under control. And I don't know how gravel cycling showed up and I got myself another bike and it was a gravel bike and... Before it was something here in Chile, just before it became something, I was already graveling and just exploring. And, and I began doing everything that you were supposed to do with a mountain bike. I was doing it with the gravel because it reminded me more of having like a steel frame when we were kids probably. Yeah. 
so that's how it went. And then the community began to grow and and were you were you living in in Santiago at then at this point? I believe you grew up in southern Chile, but you went to yes. Santiago for college, right? That's right. Uh sadly, yes, college. And then I, I went back to home and yeah, but I but, but I was running a lot. So I've been running a lot, a lot. <laughs> and cycling was basically the same thing. And graveling became an explosion just before COVID in Chile, just before, maybe a year before uh, graveling culture exploded. So I took my bike to the south. Um, I am from Punta Arenas, very far in Patagonia, very far south. And I was just graveling, trying to understand what this was. And uh, of course, I had the, everybody's drama, uh, what tire with, uh, suspension or suspension, <laughs> Bike packing, not bike packing, gravel racing. Um, how aero should I be? And yeah, but um, yeah. After and after COVID, I came back to Santiago. Maybe to help people understand a little bit about what graveling is like in Chile. Where did you where did you arrive with your bicycle setup? When? 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 What type of bike did you end up? Did you buy an aero bike? Did you buy a bike oh. packing bike? What seems to be the best for the type of terrain you were enjoying? Well, that's going to be a, lo- a complicated discussion because, um, okay, I have to give a short perspective of how gravel behaves in this lovely country of mine. Uh, we don't have to, we talked about this, right, Craig? Uh, our gravel is not like this thing you get to see in unbound gravel or some other races where you're like flowing and aero bars and everything is so nice and smooth. We have a, a more aggressive gravel. It's more rugged, uh, with more bigger rocks. It is very safe, but it's just not so fast rolling. This concept is different. So usually our gravel bikes in, the, in this country, we have wide tires, at least 38 millimeters, 38C at least. Everybody's yeah. now going over 40s. And suspension may be a t- it might be a topic, but you know it, it makes it more expensive. Um, myself, I have an, a, a, a racing uh, frame because I'm obsessed with grams. I'm a weight weenie. I'm a super weight weenie. My bi- gravel bike must be seven point three kilos. That's like a pro tour <laughs> bike. Aero pro okay. tour bike is the same weight as mine. So, but it's but um, but I have like a super amazing. Can I say the brand or no? Yeah, sure. I have Rene Hersey. Rene Hersey. Yeah, I've tested all the tires in the world, and yeah, those are like <laughs> by far the best. Um, they're too, you say supple, I think. Yeah, absorption. Yep. <laughs> my God, yeah. they're magical. So you can use well that that's just my personal experiment. But um, going back to the concept, um, I use a gravel racing bike, uh, not aero, but ultra light. But people prefer to have more chunky tires, um, maybe heavier. But they focus, of course, more on, on comfort because that is the priority in a country such as this. Yeah. When you when you talk about sort of gravel beginning to take off kind of just b- before COVID and, and then the years afterwards, were you finding other gravel cyclists? Were they starting to crop up? Did you find a way to bring that community together? Mm, well, in Patagonia itself, no. <laughs> That is the honest, the honest truth. Uh, we were like three guys, and it is growing. I will not lie, but it's it's slow because in places such as Patagonia, where the weather weather is very unpredictable, mountain biking makes more sense. And people were doing mountain biking on gravel, you know. So now yeah. it's a matter of you know the the concept has to penetrate uh, over the the community. 
Santiago is faster. Everything goes faster because, you know, Santiago is a capital of, I don't know, anymore, 10 million people. So that means there's just too much going on. Events, of course, it's just uh, everything takes place here and then it spreads uh, all over the country. So I think something fascinating is not really connected to this podcast, but Chile is one of the most connected people uh, to cell phones in the world. Like whatever you I do, if you show it on, on Instagram, people will know. You can Maybe you will be on TV, nobody will see you. But on Instagram, so I guess we are more connected through, through social media. So I can tell you how much is growing maybe in Santiago and slower in the rest of the country. But it is growing. But the rates are different. The closer you are to the capital, of course, it's faster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, you got the bright idea to put on your first event. And that was closer to Santiago, right? Very close, like two hours and a half. And it, it was not done in Santiago because... We don't really have real gravel in Santiago. So we thought, okay, where's the closest place for real gravel? And it's like, yeah, it's in a place called Navidad. We're separated in regions. And those regions are separated in municipalities. I don't know if that's the word. Yeah. Yep. Okay. In the municipality of Navidad is where we take place because we thought it was one of the best gravels we have found in the entire country, really. But it was not myself. It was um, two friends of mine. Um... That uh, Juan and Luis, he was just here. And we are partners and friends. Um, and we invented this crazy race called Gravel Coast. That was our f- first event almost four years ago. And what what's the Gravel Coast event like? <laughs> well, we call it, we invented it somehow inspired in Unbound and what's happening in, the North, Amer- in North America. We feel very connected, especially my friend Luchon. Uh, Luis, uh, Luchon likes, he knows all the athletes of your country, what's happening there, what's happening with the bikes. He likes the um, technology and everything. So, and I also feel very connected with many events over there because of Lifetime Company. You know, it's, yeah. you know, they, they, they have some understanding about marketing. <laughs> so it hits <laughs> all the way down here. So we, we try to make, an, an, let's say, an adaptation of what you are, what these people are building over there and maybe adapted to our reality because we don't have this, once again, even though it's a great gravel quality, it's not like a super fast rolling concept. It is more, it, 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 is, an, it is a real challenge to finish a gravel coast race. Don't get me wrong. Anything can do it. I mean, many people, but you have to, you have to be prepared. I mean, our 200 miles are just insane. You know, there's, there's too much climbing. So that means you're going to be on the, on the saddle a bunch of hours. You're going and to be proud is, of finishing Gravel Coast. That's what we say. And is it is it a 200-mile event, the Gravel Coast? We have, last year we had 70Ks, 100, and I forgot, my memory is so weak, but 120Ks, a 240Ks, and a 320Ks, which is a, which is a 200 miles. Okay. Now for the final... The event that is taking next year, that is 2024, is in October. That is our spring. Um, it's going to be uh, 50 miles, 100 miles, and 200 miles. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mm. Now let's talk about the event you're going to be kicking off in 2024. What inspired you? Yeah, the big one. What What inspired you to take the mantle and create this event yourself? What inspired you of where you're placing it. I have so many questions about Gravel del Fuego. 
Oh, I really love my country, especially Patagonia. <laughs> um, it's hard to explain, but okay, I'm, I'm a super lucky person because my father taught me how to fish, hunt, and some scuba diving. And Tierra del Fuego Island, it is a place that everybody wishes to see, but th there is no development. There is no, there's not many, unless you're like a person who likes fly fishing and can pay on a helicopter, <laughs> that is the only way maybe you can access to the island. Now it's getting more popular, but 20 years ago, I mean, if you were not a gaucho, you know, these people that take care of their cattle yeah. over there, or if you were not like a fisherman or maybe crazy guy, you had no idea what, I mean, you, you knew what the island was, but no way you will dare to dive into it. I think that thing is still, still happening, but I am so lucky. I know the island because of my father. He took me fly fishing all the time I'm with a truck. Don't get me wrong, not on a helicopter. And we will just, you know, get into river, rivers and he will bring his boat and we will just try to catch some salmons and trouts. And so I had that first approach and I saw the island just like that. But then I ended up being working for a king penguin colony. I mean, not for the penguins themselves, but from the owner of the, of the park. <laughs> and I began to understand there was tourism. This was like, this was the real future of the island. And then I ended up working for some company of the government for a commercial. I can show it to you on YouTube. I look very pathetic. And believe it or not, I was the model. They called me and I was like, have you seen <laughs> pictures of me? I'm not a model. <laughs> I'm not that. And they were like, no, but we need somebody adventurous, blah, blah, blah. So I saw once again the entire island without this tourism vision. Time passed. And it took me like three years to launch this race. I was not daring. I was wondering if I had the experience but after all the events we were done these days, I mean, accumulated until today, it gave us the guts to, okay, now we know we have the capacity. I have the understanding. I've been in races where people have been in trouble in Patagonia. So I saw what was wrong. So I was able to understand how I can provide some safety issues to secure people to enjoy the experience and not to be, you know, traumatized. Um, so it's been a long process. I don't know if that response uh, answers the question but um it was maybe a luck a matter of luck of having one vision and then to have a more modern vision of how tourism come dive into the island and show it to the world yeah i think it's a fairly common kind of expression from race organizers that they've just been somewhere where they want other people to see and mm -hmm. a very small number of you out there in the world take it upon yourself to map something, to organize something, to bring people together. So I'm always super excited. And I was bemused by the distance of your sprint event. Your sprint is 252 kilometers, which yes, is only a sprint in relative to the granddaddy event, which is how many kilometers for the full, full event? Uh, I, actually, I did the conversion. Um, the, okay. the, the, the sprint is... 150 miles. I know it's a sprint. Okay. It's an irony. It's an irony. And then <laughs> the, we have the big uh, uh, route that is a thousand Ks that is uh, roughly 654 miles. 600, 654 miles. Yeah. Okay. So mm. let's, let's talk about them quickly independently of one another. And let's start off with the sprint event of uh, roughly 150 miles. Mm. Can you just sort of walk us through 
what the vision was. And I believe you were telling me earlier, this was the loop that really was magical in your mind. If if you were going to do any one thing, do it for one 24 hour period, this is the loop you would want to share with the world. So let's talk about it. Well, I have to, I have to confess. Um, I have to confess that everything bo- was born from Tierra del Fuego. I, one of the obsessions I like to do is I like to do things that people have not done ever because it's more adventurous. When something is done and you're trying to break the record, you have one warranty, which is you can make it because it is already done. But when something has never been done, there is more mystery. There's more uncertainty. And I crossed the island from the north to the south in gravel racing, non-sleeping mode for the first time ever. And back then I was already building the idea of making a race, but I wasn't sure. And then the upper section of the entire race, I speak of the 600 miles race. I've done it many times driving because I was a guide. And also I was hunting yeah. with my father in some sections too, uh, birds. Um, when I say hunting, whatever I killed, I ate it. So please don't be upset, people. Um, having said that, um, what was the question? Sorry? Well, I wanted to talk through both of the the distances and sort of the vision and oh, the starting one. with the sprint loop. Like, what is what what would the riders be experiencing? Yeah. Okay. My apologies. Uh, the the short loop was kind of logical because it it, it is <laughs> it enters the the famous park, national park uh, called Torres del Paine. Torres del Paine are these granite towers um, that are super insane. These spikes with elevate thousands of meters up the sky. And quick, quick, aside, mm-hmm. quick, quick aside, I literally have a picture of the mountains you're describing in my kitchen. You see, it, it proves something. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> right. Um, so um, sadly, because of a matter of logistics, we cannot make it shorter. Uh, we will have to bring people to, I don't know, closer to the mountains, but that mean, would mean to move the people and their bikes. And that is just impossible. So Chile is a very expensive yeah. country. So Sorry. That's the best we can do. And what you're going to see is that. I mean, from the mile 60, you get to see the towers right away. Uh, the videos are, are on the Instagram of uh, Gravel del Fuego. That is the name of the race. And yeah, I mean, as you are pedaling, Craig, you're just looking at the towers from one angle. Then you get to see more of the three towers because there are three towers. Uh, and then one of the towers hides and then you just get to see two, but then you see this cold mountain called Almirante Nieto, which is full of glaciers. And yet you get to see the entire faces of the, the of these of these guys. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, of the Almirante Nieto. You leave away Almirante Nieto, and then you see the horns, los cuernos, the horns of of the Paine, which are these granite once again towers. That on top they have uh, volcanic material, which is the black dots on top of them, and that is amazing. Like I just today, I just put some stories on the Instagram how beautiful they are. And then you final, finish finish with the final peak, the highest one, which is called Paine Grande, Big Paine, that it has a huge plateau of, glacier, of just glaciers. Um, I'm sorry, I get excited, but I don't know if that... So that is the point of the sprint. I know it's not a sprint, of course, but we made it available for all people because they have 20 hours to finish the race. That is a lot of hours. You can contemplate, you can stop, you can eat, and... But it's just, I don't know. Uh, I wish people, I, w- I guess I have to invite them to get into the website and see the pictures. Like we went on April so people would see how the w- landscape is going to look for them. 
it's just amazing. Yeah. I mean, contemplating mounting as you pedal, it cannot be any better, don't you think? Yeah, no, I agree. And your enthusiasm is absolutely warranted. And again, I encourage everybody to follow Gravelo Fuego on Instagram and go to the website. You'll see the pictures. You'll see what we're talking about. And you'll see that even the most monotone individual cannot help but be effusive about how beautiful that region is. When mm, you think about mm. that loop and you think about the riders, they have 20 hours, you know, inevitably there'll be some person, some people who are racing it. What do you think one can get around the loop in with 20 hours being the maximum? What do you think sort of the minimum winning race time might be? That's a big one. Um, well, I already have my cards on one possible winner. <laughs> His name is, I'm going to say him because he saw the race. When I invented the race, he was the first guy who saw the circuit, the, the final circuit. Some other friends helped me. Uh, I have to name him he, because he's a very great inspiration for ultra community. His name is Canuto Rasuris. We've done some st crazy stuff together. Actually, we did the Everesting road cycling together. And next week, Andres Tagle, the, uh, maybe the best graveler we have in the country, he saw the circuit. I mean, next, uh, next week, he did the Everesting. Since then, we became friends. And he saw the gravel, the fuego concept, and he was like, Tito, I'm so in. This is the best gravel, the best race ever. Let's do it. He, uh, well, he will not do the sprint. I think he will go for the thousand, but if somebody of that caliber will go, he can make the race in nothing. I don't know. I would have to do the math, but it would be 23Ks. I can, let me do it real quick. But people that are very fast, and it's legal to draft, so they can do it very quick. Um, yeah. Wait. They can do it under. I don't know, seven hours, if not less. Oh Andres is detonated. We say in Spanish, right. Andres is detonated. It's, it's, he's reaching levels that he's going probably, I'm guessing he's going to unbound and he's going for something big. Um, let's pray for him. Yeah, interesting. Uh, we'll have to keep our eyes open for him. Yeah. And then the the um, the thousand K event, totally different, you know, ball game. You're you're talking about six and a half days. Yes to complete it on the, on the outside. Talk a little bit about that experience. You mentioned earlier that it goes down into, um, Tierra del Fuego. So you'll, you'll do the yeah. same loop as the sprint, but also head way down to the very, very Southern tip, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, allow me to say just a little thing, because when people hear Patagonia, they hear, they think wind, wind, and then they think rain, rain. And this is very important, uh, Craig. Uh, we did the race in, on April. Which, that is autumn. It's fall. It's not summer. And the question is, why don't you do it in summer? I mean, it's warmer. The answer is yes, but. Yes, it's warmer, but the wind is way stronger in our spring and our summer. Way more. So that's why people think of wind, because they come in the high season when, when, when yeah. they think it's better. But the thing is, in fall, the amount of wind... It's way less. It's way less. Like, I don't know, way slower. I'm saying 80% the, the max wind speed you get to have in summer, uh, you have only 20% that speed in April. And the same happens with the rains. When it rains, it rains a lot in summer. But if it does in April, it could be more like a shower. So yeah. eventually you just can keep pedaling. But it's, it is colder, of course. It is colder, but it's not extreme cold. So it's what, and the other, and finally, is the landscape because Patagon is great, but sadly, what people don't know, and I guess, I don't know if it's sad or not, but what I'm trying to share is the most beautiful contrasts 
of colors, you get to have them in, in April because it's fall. So the, the trees are orange. So you have the glaciers that are ready. And then you have the high mountains already with snow because it's freezing yeah. on the top of them. But you get to have this contrast of these trees with green. And the farther you go south, it's orange. And that's why. And, and, and finally, we did the circuit in a way where if there is wind, it's going to be on your tail. That's why it goes yeah, from gonna... north to south. I was going to ask you that because the coast of California is the same way. It can have a ripping wind, but you know, nine days out of 10, it's always going to be from the north to the south. Exactly the same here. I mean, yeah. I'm speaking from a point of view of mathematics. Something, some, it, this is Patagonia. Everything is unpredictable. Sometimes, of course, we can have great wind. But if it does, once again, it should be on your tail, not, on your he- not in your head, which is awful. So yeah, yeah. That is very, very important to be mentioned because there is an explanation for choosing not summer, right? <laughs> exactly. Mm. So Sorry. this, mm. this um, 1000K course also yes. has a pretty significant amount of climbing. So you're obviously picking some of that up in the, in the first sprint loop. But then as you go south, are you going over large mountain peaks along the way? No, it's very fascinating because when you go to Torres del Paine area, as, you, as we talked, you get to see the mountains, but then you go south and it's fascinating because eventually when you go south, then you're going to go east following the extreme border of Argentina. Technically, in many places, you're going to look to your left and that is going to be Argentina itself. Like you, you can literally cross illegally to Argentina. Uh, not that I have done it, uh, but uh, <laughs> it's fascinating. I promise you. And that area is so flat. It's so flat. It's, I have pictures posted already. And it's, I've never seen something like that. Not on gravel. Like infinite flatness of a straight road for miles. For miles. Okay. I promise you. And then you go south once again. And then you are as, as long as you're going more and more south, you're somehow approaching a mountain range which is not famous. It's called Darwin Mountain Range. That is just before... <laughs> the ocean that touches the, the, the Antarctica, the farther you go south, you get to climb. But, um, but it's very graveling, rolling, very decent pace, most of the circuit. And when I say this, I'm yeah. saying of 70% of the circuit. The rest of it, at, especially at the end, very, very end, you get to have mountains for real. And they're beautiful. Gotcha. But it's the final challenge. That's right. How do you imagine cyclists approaching the 1,000K in terms of where will they be sleeping? What, what does that end up looking like? That's a good question. Um, what, it, what we did is in the website, we created something called, I don't know in English, but it's like, a, it's like a, we call it the guide of the race. And we put every single camping, hostel, hotel where you can sleep. So you, somehow you can make a schedule of where you're going to sleep, where you're going to go. So, or maybe as you are riding, you can arrange a, a bed for you to be waiting, to be waiting for you. Um, I think I'm pretty sure it's something like not many races of this distance I have, and we're very proud of it because you can somehow be more safe. Because in other races, it's like from point A, from point B, follow the circuit. Good luck. See you soon. And you have you have to fix yeah. it for yourself to keep more safety for the people. We did so. So. I can tell you, and actually we have 12 checkpoints. Many races of this distance, they have only, I don't know, two or three, by a miracle, five checkpoints. We have 12. And most of them, they're hotels, hostels, 
So if you're tempted to for a hot shower, you'll have it. If you don't have money or you don't want to spend money, many of them, they have like a place for you to put a set a tent. I have friends that they're coming like this, that crazy, um, more sacrificed style. Um, but also if you're graveling and you want to crash it, um, you can program very well many places to stay. Even though there's not many much traffic, not many cars moving along, the circuit, just ourselves, um, when I say ourselves, the, the organizers, where we have eight vehicles for safety, um, just moving around. Um, there are many places where you can be sleeping. You're not going to be so, so abandoned in the nothingness of the Patagonia. And will, will the same, uh, would you make the same comment about the ability to resupply with food and water? Um, for the 250Ks, they're very safe. In the, actually, the, the, the big loop also, I mean, the big circuit, because the, four, the first four checkpoints, they will have water, isotonic, and some fruits. So that will make it for most of it. I mean, especially for the sprint. But the, for the rest of the guys, uh, I have arranged a few spots where, uh, where they can buy food. Uh, and many places, as I said, they have, they have hostels, hotels, and nice people that they want to be involved with the community in this uh, event. I have seen them a few, a few times, making sure that it will be open. And many of them are just waiting, these people. Like, and so, yeah, they will find food. But of course, the thousand Ks have to be a little more careful. You know, the type of nutrition they require is different. Uh, um, the amount of calories, uh, but it's all mostly settled. Yeah. Gotcha. And it looks like at some point you have to cross a waterway. Is there a ferry that the riders will be taking? That's right. Um, yeah, I'm very excited about it because that requires logistics from the point of view of the, the, the athletes, right? Um, I've done the math and yeah. the, uh, and most of the, the winners, uh, they shall not have to wait for the ferry to... I mean, here's the thing. The ferry works from, I don't remember, I think from 8 in the morning until 23 p.m., uh, 23 hours. That, so that's a huge okay. gap. But that doesn't guarantee everybody will cross. So first of all, just before the ferry, 20, 16 miles before the ferry maybe, there is a, a town that I already have talked many, uh, have had many meetings with them. They're going to supply us uh, like a gymnasium where they have beds and everything for emergency if, if people want to stay. If people want to pay for more comfort, that's no problem. Um, but I would say like the 40, maybe more, maybe 55%, 40% of the strongest of the racers will make it without waiting for the ferry because this ferry is crossing from the continent to the island, um, every 30 minutes, maybe an okay. hour and at, the, at the most it's a 20 meter minutes cross. And it's beautiful because you're crossing what is called the Magellanic Strait before the Panama channel. The only way you That's can straight, make it to the other side. Right. Yeah. I think it was discovered in 1530. That was the farthest I ever made it. I made it to the side of the Straits of Magellan on the northern side to look at the strait, but I didn't make it across. You see? Yeah. So I'm not lying. You see? Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, I think it, there is like a deep symbolism in it because it also brings adventure. It brings more of, more of a challenge, but also maybe once again, maybe you want to take it slow. I have We have people from Spain. And they want to take it slow. They want to take the six days and a half and they want to sleep just before the ferry because they, they just want to see everything on daylight. So everything has been done like thinking of that, like gravel racers, but they don't want to wait for the ferry. They just want to get to the other side as fast as possible. 
I think it, we are going to manage that. Slower people can make it to the other side without waiting. Yes, some others will be forced to be waiting, of course. I mean, there is a schedule. Yeah. But um, I think it's, you mentioned, I, I want to believe it's well, the, very well managed. The, perfect. You mentioned the, those final mountains. I think you, they, were, they were the Magellan Mountains. Are they on Tierra del Fuego? Yeah, no, but they are the Darwin Mountain Range. We, uh, as you're Sorry, getting close by, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Um, so many names. It's like there's no way I know all the mountains in your country. No worries. No worries. Um, the Darwin Mountain Range, as I said, yes, you're getting so close to them that that's why you have this um, this we call them peaks. Um, and it's funny because in between, before every climb, there is a lagoon on not a lagoon. Um, how do you say a lake on the other side? And they're very famous for fly fishing. Actually, my father walked to the first lake. It took him three days to get there because there was no road before. You had to go, no GPS. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. I have pictures of my father climbing those mountains that now you can do, go on a bicycle in a super safe way. Um, but yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, the last 300 case, I mean, everything has its beauty, right? Um, Torres del Paine National Park, it's mind-blowing. There are no words. You have to see it until you see it, and then you see, and then you understand. And it's going to be in your heart forever. Then you deal with the pampa, which is the steep, you say in English, with this, this total flatness that drives you crazy. But it's like super graveling, fast rolling. Uh, there is a video where I'm pedaling, I don't know, 20-something miles per hour on aero mode, like flying over the, the course. And then you have some sections of the pampa, and at the, the final... 200 miles are, are just too impressive. It's too beautiful because then you get to dive yourself into the into the forest. And there are some sections where just you're in caves covering this beautiful, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say it in English. Um, because I, I do believe this. I, I do feel this race is, I don't know, for me, but I, I, here's the point, Craig. Uh, if you do a race from one point, for point A, point B, it can be an experience, right? But I want to believe that ultra cycling, any ultra thing we do, there is an opportunity to know yourself. And one of the best ways to know yourself is to be dive, like super dived into the nature, like in immersed. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when you, when people say like, yeah. there is a moment in life where it, you feel you are aware that you are you, but also you are somehow aware. <laughs> this is going to be too romantic, but you can be aware of the leaves. You can be aware of the dirt. You can be aware of the of the water, and somehow you really feel part of everything. I want to believe this race can yeah. give you that, especially uh, in the beginning and at the bottom of the race. I, I love it, Tito. That was perfect, and I, I totally agree with you. There's something that that's sort of transcendent when you're on the bike for multiple days in a row, whether. It's as simple as bicycle touring or as adventurous as an event like this. You just become closer to nature than you ever could on a, on a day by day long bike ride. I'm into that. Yes. <laughs> so Tito, at the very end of this race, you're quite far away from where you started. What happens at the end? Uh, well, I have to extract people. <laughs> Here's the thing. Um, remember <laughs> we spoke about the wind and everything. We could make the race somehow to make you, uh, to, for you to return by yourself pedaling from the south to the north. But as we talked before, the wind comes from the north, from the northwest. So that means probably the wind is going to be in your head. And even though it's uh, um, slower, less powerful compared to the summer, 
uh, we are taking everybody by ourselves. You get to the finish line. There is a, a sign that says end of the road. It's very perfect. And we're going to set up tents. And we, every time we gather four people, we get them on a, on a vehicle, on a pickup truck. And we have to drive them. We have to extract them from the island to the main city, which is called Porvenir, where my mother was born. Um, and yeah, and uh, that's how then they can take another ferry. This is another uh, ferry because there are two axes uh, through the island. A small ferry that is in the race, but then there is a longer one, which is like an hour and a half on this ferry to get, where you get to the capital of the region, that is Punta Arenas. Okay. Um, so, so that, but it's a long, I mean, we have to drive them like, I don't know, from this, from the finish to the city, Porvenir, it must be oof, almost four hours. And before that, we fall, we drop them to the, in the city, we give them as a gift, the, uh, the, I don't know, the gift, I guess. I'm sorry. We give them the access to see the penguin. Remember I told you we work in, I work in the King Penguin yeah. protected area. Okay. Um, we already talked to the owners, um, to the people over there, and the money of the entrance for the pink king penguin is goes directly into the protection of these king penguins, and and participants can see them directly as a gift. That that's so much fun. Tell mm. tell us again when when is the event happening? What's the event date? April thirteenth, all the way to the twentieth. All a bunch of okay. days. Yeah, and. When the listeners of this podcast want to book their tickets and come to the event, how do you how do you get there? Do you fly into Santiago and then fly south? Yeah, if for example, in your case, like anybody, everybody's case, um, situation, they have to fly to Santiago. Well said, uh, to the capital of the country, that's Santiago of Chile. And from Santiago of Chile, there are too many flights. Uh, all the way, my recommendation would be to fly to Punta Arenas. Uh, Punta Arenas, okay. which means it means Sandy Point. <laughs> um, Punta Arenas is P U Q. Um, if you want to look for the airport, and there are buses all the time going to Puerto Natales, where the race really starts. Um, it's for a small fee. Must be like well, with the bike, might be ten thousand Chilean pesos, which is I don't know fourteen dollars. Okay. Um, but yeah, my recommendation would be to fly to Santiago, Santiago, Punta Arenas, Punta Arenas a bus, which is three hours bus from Punta Arenas, Puerto Natales. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. I feel like that's part of, it's part of the Patagonian experience spending some time on a bus. If you want to see the beautiness and the loneliness of everything. Yeah, that's how it is. It is a real adventure. Yeah. Amazing. Mm. Amazing. Mm. Tito, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about Gravel del Fuego. I hope the event is a big success. I know from experience, the region is absolutely stunning. And it's amazing that you've taken the time to put this route together. And I can't wait for gravel cyclists all around the world to come and experience this region. Thank you for your time, Craig. Um, I want to put this uh, recorded. You're welcome. Uh, if you want to come to the race, just um, let's see if you are crazy and want to have this crazy adventure with me and experience the Patagonia one more time on two wheels. Um, it will be an honor. I do mean it. I mean... I listen to your podcast. I mean, <laughs> it would be an honor. So yeah, I want you I, I would, to express I would love it. that and appreciate it. And I will 100% get to Patagonia again in my lifetime. It's just, it's too special a place not to revisit in, in, in my lifetime once again. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your Thanks time. Thanks again, Tito. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride podcast. 
And in fact, at December 19th, that's going to be our last episode for the year. And we'll pick it up again in 2024. Huge thanks to all you listeners for supporting me this year. I wouldn't do it without your feedback and encouragement. Big thanks to all the sponsors, including this week's sponsor, Dynamic Cyclists. If you as an individual are interested in supporting the show, one of the best things you can do for me is leave me a strong rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. That really helps with discoverability. Or feel free to visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride if you're able to support us financially. Until next time, and until next year, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.